Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's first meeting is Matteo Chevron, a co-founder and co-CIO of TKO Capital a publicly listed alternative asset manager that oversees 25 billion euros across private credit, real estate, private equity, and liquid strategies. Our conversation tells the story of how Matteau and his friend Antoine began with 4 million euros in 2004 and turned it into one of Europe's alternative asset juggernauts in just 14 years. We cover the founding of TKO, 
the importance of alignment and having skin in the game, and having a diverse, multicultural team. We then turn to investing and discuss why good deals have no wheels, the competitive landscape, sourcing, due diligence, and decision-making processes, opportunities and risks, and lessons learned. Please enjoy my first meeting with Matteau Chevron from TKO Capital. Matteau, great to see you. Hey, Ted. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Well, we have a great story to tell. So why don't we just start at the beginning? So what was the beginning of you, your, your first foray into the business? It goes back, I think, 1998, when I met my uh, partner, Antoine Flammarion, who's my uh, co-founding partner of TKO. We started the business in 2004, but worked together in investment banking, you know, for six years. And we like to say in this business that it's a people business and certain people you meet along the way matter more than others. That has been the tone of the journey ever since. And so what did you learn in those initial years in investment banking that kind of caught a spark for you? Listen, that was late 90s. It was very intense, a lot of uh, deal flow, a lot of transaction. And when you're fresh out of school, you know, it remains one of the greatest way to learn the business, to learn the toolbox, to learn how to behave, you know, also, you know, how to behave with people. And as I said, you know, to make some uh, meetings and get to know people along, uh, along the way. Lucky enough to uh, have great mentors, great bosses. Many of them now work with us at TKO. Our very first partner uh, was our first boss, Antoine and I. And along the way, you know, we brought in some 20 or so uh, people we've been meeting and working with and today hold some very senior positions. How did you go from really just a few years out of college, say six years of investment banking, to deciding you're going to take the leap and start TKO? We like to talk about entrepreneurs in our businesses because that's what we finance. Those are the people you, you lead to an IPO. Those are people doing M&As. But there are actually very little and very few entrepreneurs you know, in the financial services business and probably even more so in Europe. So uh, we were respectively uh, at the time 31 and 28 years old, having a pretty good, although, you know, pre-GFC uh, career in investment banking. Antoine told me, you know, it's about time we give it a shot. And I remember some of my uh, bosses telling me it's either too late or it's too early. Looking back, I think it was just about the right time. So what was it that Antoine said at the time that caught you to say, okay, I'm not going to listen to what all these people are telling me? Well, let me step back, if I may. My very first job at Merrill Lynch at the time, as a young intern you know, in the Paris office, you know, I met this guy, Antoine Flammarion, who uh, was a first-year analyst. And uh, when he uh, interviewed me you know, for the first time, he said, don't give me you know, all this BS about you know, what you learned at school. I could not uh, care more. The only thing I care about is, you know, are we going to get along together? Because we're going to be spending 17 hours, probably seven days a week working together. And that's really what matters. And 22 years later, you know, we're still working together. And I think that's what really matters. So when he decided to uh, leave Goldman Sachs and uh, told me, now we have to give it a go, it didn't take me uh, much time to think about that, you know, and uh, here we went. And so what was your original plan? Our original plan 
looking backwards was to say, okay, we learned a lot of techniques, you know, of uh, reading through these uh, annual reports all night long, putting deals together, you know, from a much bigger company. We're like, you know, why don't we try to develop our own investment platform? You know, we've been following what uh, some of uh, obviously the uh, big U.S. managers today, alternative managers have been uh, showing the ways. And uh, we've been looking at them, you know, from where we were sitting in uh, London, we're like, you know what, that's maybe, you know, an interesting area to try to do something. It was extremely modest. We started with friends and family, you know, putting together 4 million euros. And it's obviously a tiny in the scope of uh, things when you start, you know, this uh, business. But uh, we went all in as far as we were concerned. The small bonuses, you know, we had uh, the big bonuses, you know, 400,000 euros that we had uh, accumulated. And uh, we said, you know what? Maybe we don't have a brand, maybe we don't have a track record, but what we can tell people is we're going to be all in, in the proper sense. And this alignment of interest, you know, this skin in the game, as you say, which has become, you know, an interesting, uh, an interesting feature over the years, you know, from the very outset, like any single entrepreneur, was at the core of our development. And so with 4 million euros, was that working capital or was that investment capital? It was uh, investment capital. So if you do the math, you know, take a 2% on 4 million, it's 80,000 euros of revenues are uh, small, albeit very nice offices by Place de la Concorde in Paris. They were probably 120,000 euro a year, right? So uh, day one, you knew that you didn't have the luxury just to sit back and relax and you had to be in the development and on the move. And so what was the first deal you guys did together? It's an interesting uh, anecdote that Antoine pulled when we uh, acquired as the very first deal the flea market in the outskirts of Paris. Some of you uh, may know, I mean, the antiques fan, it's a must. It's a little bit like the Portobello market in London. And, uh, you know, it was like, uh, call it a 20 million euro transaction. We had 4 million of equity, as uh, I told you. And so uh, from the very beginning, we had to look for co-investors, for some partners, and effectively to do the deal twice. Once for us as an investor, as a principal, and then a second time, you know, for co-investors who would tag along. And this mindset has uh, last ever since where effectively you need to be convinced not only to deploy someone else's money, but first and foremost to invest your own money. And uh, to date, it remains one of the greatest investments we've made. We sold it to the Duke of Westminster, Grosvenor, who owned, you know, Portobello a few years later. And uh, it remains an iconic transaction, you know, for us and for the people in the firm. So after that first deal that you did, how did you progress from having $4 million to invest to something so substantial in a pretty short period of time? First of all, you like to say you're as good as your last deal. So that was a good uh, case study that uh, we'd be able to showcase to, uh, again, at the time, mainly entrepreneurs, family offices, and they liked the idea that we were able to find them opportunities they wouldn't see with their private banks or, you know, other things like that. And so came, you know, some, we bought some uh, portfolio of hotels in the French Alps, and then we brought, you know, some new uh, co-investors, and then we had our first, you know, equity investment, and we started creating this kind of community of people who were very happy to do deals together, then started to give us more long-term resources, long-term capital, 
Then we started to creating much more traditional fund format, LP, uh, GP format. And that's how, you know, we build this capital base with something very important. It's along the way, we tried as much as we can to actually increase our own stake into the company by building, you know, this uh, increased stake in the balance sheet so that we would increase the, uh, the skin in the game that had been the driver to attract those uh, investors and partners. Today, you're hearing a lot about permanent capital. People talk about permanent capital, you know, for other reasons. And I understand very much why, you know, both from an investment standpoint and an investor standpoint, you will be looking for a non-traditional structure. When we started, you know, these 4 million euros were effectively an evergreen structure that we grew over time, you know, not only by the income that the deal we made and the successful deal, you know, we exited and contributed to the earning. But then we brought in some... uh, partners, very often, you know, entrepreneurs themselves, family offices, you know, people who effectively don't have to go through the traditional consultant diligence that obviously there were no way, you know, we could have overcome, you know, such a thing, you know, being so, so small. And that's how we started developing this equity base that we grew over time, which is what we took public, you know, when we went public, you know, later on. And by remaining the largest shareholder here, we had created what I think is the perfect alignment of interest, where effectively not only you put your money where your mouth is, but you know that you do not create some kind of distortion of interest that some incentive scheme, you know, sometimes generates. So this very permanent nature added to some third-party asset management, putting all that together when we decided to go public just to rationalize the structure, you know, is what has led to a TKO capital the way you can see today. Before we get to today, I'm so curious about how you start with this one deal and then grow and grow and grow. So before you can have real institutional investors, you're still, what was the next deal after that? And how did that progress over a short period of time? I think we were, and we're thankful to that, the support we received from uh, some uh, large European family offices who, uh, even more so maybe back in the day, were not as structured as they can be today. And they were telling us, you know what, you may not have a lot of capital to deploy, but you've got plenty of idea and plenty of energy. And maybe without knowing it, we had created our own co-investment program at the time which was, you know what, you can speak for bigger than what you can swallow because we will be there. I can think of great support of ours over the years, you know, from uh, Albert Freire in Belgium to uh, Bernard Arnault, you know, here in France. Then, you know, when Goldman Sachs became a shareholder of ours through their uh, principal investing arm, obviously, you know, when you're only a few years into the business and still small, that's a powerful message you're giving the market. So you do a deal, then another one, then the people who co-invested with you they're telling you well actually why don't I become a shareholder alongside you and then you grow a little bit bigger your equity base and then you can start effectively going to the institutional uh, money and it's interesting because effectively tying that back with what I think LPs globally now are looking for be institutional money public pension funds but large family offices they want to be able to cherry pick they want to hit a la carte and uh, that's one thing where it's been part of our DNA to develop this approach Antoine and you, when you were first going out, what was your pitch? 
Well, I think the pitch hasn't changed. And ironically, it's uh, funny because, you know, today the group is obviously a little bit more uh, advanced, you know, in terms of our institutional strategies, private credit, private equity, private real estate, capital market strategies. So today's, let's call it 25, 26 billion AUM. But when we pull out our very first pitch, when we were managing 4 million, it was actually a few slides where we were saying we want to be exposed to credit, which is what we were coming from. We want to be exposed to equity, you know, to real estate. And that hasn't really changed. So actually what is very interesting is that I would be lying to you, Ted, if I was telling you that uh, we knew uh, 15 years ago that we would be sitting here today talking to you with the platform, but the, the ambition and the vision hasn't changed. We remain opportunistic, you know, in good and bad times because obviously, you know, we had our share of pain, you know, uh, with the GFC, with the uh, sovereign crisis. But uh, the team who grew up with us, because you said about Antoine and Mathieu, but what we are very proud of today is that the bulk of our senior partners are people who started with us as young kids 15 years ago. And we all grew up together, which is another feature not that common in the industry. So you mentioned this backing into effectively this co-investment model that stayed with you. What are the other, as you look today, core components of TKO's philosophy? I'm coming back to this backbone of our approach, which is the skin in the game. Only a few structures, I mean, certainly in Europe, where management team taken as a whole has invested real sweat equity, what I would call because we all know that the alternative uh, markets have generated this uh, optionality, which will be by way of uh, carried interest, incentive fees that people would put as uh, the uh, alignment of interest. I actually think, you know, it's a fairly cheap option compared to any other business. You know, if you were to open a restaurant, you would go to the bank, you would borrow some money, you know, you would be losing sleep at night. And that hasn't changed. It's been at the core of our development. It's been at the core of the support of our shareholders, investors, historical and new. As a fact, you know, I must say that uh, not only new markets in Asia, in North America, that's uh, an interesting part of the story. And talking to capital allocators, even, you know, some consultants are getting more and more interested to this aspect of the business, where effectively we're not investing someone else's money. We're first and foremost investing our money and offering someone else to tag along. And what does that structure look like today? So today, TKO Capital is listed asset manager on uh, Euronext with, uh, let's call it, 5 billion balance sheet, 3.2 billion of equity. We're managing uh, 25.4 billion of AUM. And what is interesting, and I want to put that in a right way, we're actually a little bit overcapitalized relative to our AUM because uh, if you were to look at the equity base, I'm not talking the market cap, right? I'm looking at the odd equity base that TKO is uh, benefiting from. You'll be surprised to see that uh, we rank within the top five of the uh, global asset manager, albeit with a much smaller AUM base. And that is a key feature of our structure. So a very standardized structure when it comes to LP allocation into or private equity or private real estate, but as a public company, a very uh, aligned model with the management team, with the investment team. So to make sure I understand that, the equity of the public company, as you're stating it, are those investments that you have in your funds? That's correct. And the model has evolved over time, and we raised uh, additional equity last year, taking advantage of the uh, 
very strong structural tailwind that our business is benefiting from. And that's what we told the market is that we want to use this capital, you know, that the balance sheet has to invest side by side with the LPs. That's not free money. We told the market, you know, we want to generate 10 to 15% return on capital employed. But you're not only, you know, getting exposed to an asset manager, but you're also getting exposed to what I call the factory. Because, you know, the private assets, they're all bespoke. They're all handmade. They're all one of a kind. You know, you don't buy a QCIP security. So if you're doing that for someone else, why wouldn't you be doing that for yourself and effectively opening up to a wider shareholder base? How do you think about the balance that you hear about sometimes with public asset managers of making sure that you're serving your LPs as constituents, but then also shareholders of the company who might be a different group of investors? Yeah, that's true. You often have this debate, but I think it's particularly true for what I would call the pure asset manager, meaning people who are gathering assets taking management fees, sometimes performance fees, you know, based on the strategy, but effectively being only an agent, not a principal, managing on behalf of someone else. Our model, like many of our, you know, close friends and competitors, is effectively to be invested side by side. And here you mitigate dramatically the debate that you've been uh, referring to. Because, you know, you may not be buying only an asset manager, you're also buying an investment company, but then, you know, you get the benefits both of the scale of the management fees, but also, you know, the performance fees that goes into the listed company. And here it's a model that is developing, obviously, in the US, but also in Europe, where we're seeing more and more of those models. And I really believe that it's certainly the model of the future, where people will be looking for an increased alignment between the LPs and the GPs. Let's turn a bit to your team to execute across these strategies. What does that look like today? So today, TKO is 550 people across 12 offices. Europe is our uh, home market. We've been in Asia for uh, five years, Singapore, then Korea, Japan. I relocated to New York a year and a half ago. That was our first step into the North American market. And so the team is really a very diverse, both uh, culturally, by gender, by nationalities. You know, it's 27 nationalities at uh, TKO. All our uh, top jobs, including uh, CFOs, head of private debt, head of CLOs, head of various countries, are uh, held by uh, some of my uh, female partners. And that, for a company that started just the two of us, not that we're alike, but coming from the same investment banking background, as we grew, is a very important achievement in the culture we have developed at TKO. We had a very, very limited turnover over the years, which we are very proud of. But more importantly, you know, some young people who were trainees with us, you know, 15 years ago, today are heading some very senior position. We've been through the crisis together. We saw the black swan the day it popped up. And now, you know, we know that it may come back. So uh, it's painful to be paranoid every day, but it's great to know that you can rely on teams you've been uh, living, breathing, and investing with for, uh, for some time. How many different countries do you have offices in just within Europe? 
So Europe is where headquartered and listed in Paris. London is obviously our second largest presence. And when I say obviously, you know, I really mean it and it will remain post-Brexit. And then Benelux is an interesting concept. When we opened Belgium, despite being only two hours away by train, you know, we thought that Benelux was a concept that stood on its own. But actually, you know, we had to open Luxembourg. We then opened Amsterdam and all this reach, this uh, Boots on the ground, you know, you put with different cultural nationalities. That is all incremental to your deal flow. Italy, Milan, you know, is a great platform. So is, you know, Madrid, Spain. So we really have these boots on the ground that not only have proven to be a huge differentiating factors for uh, our sourcing, but also for our uh, investor uh, relationship and our investors' dialogue. I mean, they appreciate you being close to them, not visiting them only when you launch, you know, the next vintage of a, of a fund and developing a dialogue and creating this partnership. When you have that many diverse cultures, even just within Europe, how do you bring together a common investment approach? Well, I think it starts uh, with the culture and culture being defined by the uh, direction. And uh, many of uh, our partners and team and colleagues and staff, they've been living the TKO journey where year on year we try to uh, take the business a step further. And that in itself, and particularly, you know, for those who live through the GFC together, which is the bulk of our senior uh, partners, we I hate saying that, but we kind of went to war together. And so having experienced those adverse conditions today, coming back to your question about the investment approach, we know some in an investment committee sometimes, I know that there are some, some look, people looking at each other that mean much more than effectively hours of debate, positively or negatively. And it's like a, a sports team. You get your uh, habits, you know exactly how people think and you people are okay to be challenged because they know that they are all tied together because of the very nature of the structure, the way the team are compensated. There cannot be any free riders and there cannot be any people at the right time at the right place. So this is the key of having a diligent, selective albeit, you know, contradictory investment process. And as we like to say, the biggest risk manager is the very fact that all of the partners are so much exposed that first and foremost, not only they're investing as if it was for themselves, because it is for themselves. I want to dive into the investment process. Before we do that, I want to touch on kind of the corporate strategy. I know that along the way, as you said, you've trained some people up that are running meaningful offices. You've also at times acquired teams and strategies. How do you think about that buy versus build decision? I believe we're entering a time you know, of uh, consolidation after uh, years of development of private market managers. First of all, you know, whenever we look at an acquisition, and we made a few over the years, it's always an arbitrage. You know, if I'm paying 100 to a seller, what could I get if I was using those 100 as working capital to develop the same you know, strategy organically? So it would take more time. Could I get the talent and the skill set? Could I get the same performance? So it's always you know, about this arbitrage. The second thing is it always comes down to uh, culture and chemistry because we are in a people business and you want to make sure that whoever is 
added to the team will not be diluted the existing culture, but will be uh, enriching, you know, the existing, you know, the existing culture. And sometimes it's really about uh, the uh, strategic move of uh, expanding into a new asset class, entering a new uh, geography, and making sure that uh, all that give you access potentially sometimes to a new uh, investor base where you could develop, you, you could effectively use the existing dialogue. So for us, it's not mutually exclusive. Having the balance sheet and the currency of the balance sheet and more importantly, having the resources to be able to uh, provide to a team who's looking to launch a new strategy and they need the backing, you know, with 100 million, you know, supporting that. We think we can be a partner of choice but as you said, you cannot just build a strategy on adding some teams who don't get together. I mean, the cocktail has to, uh, has to mix well. When you're thinking about going into a new opportunity, what's the analysis and the assessment that you do to decide either to launch a new fund or develop a new team? So there are some very subjective ones, which are, does it take the objective, the targeted returns? that we uh, have made public, you know, for the public shareholders. You know, we said that our capital is a 10 to 15% return on capital employed. And so sometimes, you know, let's say, uh, I don't know, an infrastructure debt product, at least in Europe, which is very uh, competitive with the European banks, does not really make sense. But, you know, expanding into the equity uh, infrastructure in the US, in the mid-market, then it makes, you know, potentially a lot of sense. So there is this analysis, these grid lines, you know, where effective is it additive, is it relative, and then do we want to be ourselves, you know, exposed to that? And then it's about, you know, the team. All the people we hired along the way are people we either have met in other capacity, have met, you know, in some deals we've been knowing from, a, and, and that is something that very quickly helps you decide whether or not, you know, that she is or he is the right partner to help you in this uh, new strategy. And that's an important uh, item, I guess. How have you approached investing in the European markets? So it's a very interesting landscape because in our industry, for years, decades, the European market was London, right? The European financial market was London. You were flying into Gatwick or Heathrow. You were spending, you know, a few days, you know, in London. And uh, you thought that you had covered, you know, the European financial markets. I'm leaving all the uh, debate about Brexit aside. But uh, when it comes to private market, as I said, everything we do is very bespoke. It's local situation. You have to be local. We have a, a saying at TKO, we like to say, Good deals have no wheels. And by the time the opportunity hits, you know, some investment banker's desk, you know, in London, a lot of smart people on the ground have seen the opportunity. So long common to tell you that while I hate saying that the only thing we have in common in Europe is a currency, I mean, that would be a lie. But if you sketch it a little bit, it's very different to be doing business in Madrid than it is in Frankfurt. It is different from doing business in Milan than it is, you know, in Paris, etc., etc. And so for us, it has always been about having the right people on the ground, people who can connect locally, who can generate their own deal flow, who can broaden 
the origination flow of what we are seeing and not just waiting for advisors, investment banks to show you some, uh, some opportunities. And the model that has prevailed for years of the what I would call the flying flyout out of London in our business of the private market has its limits. If you're buying, you know, QC bearing securities, you know, you can be sitting in London and it's, uh, it's fine. But everything we do, you know, is effectively uh, handmade and you have to be close to this country. That's why, you know, from the very beginning, we decided to invest in the infrastructure. We decided to have some local offices. Coming back to our journey, having this balance sheet, you know, supporting the whole development has been critical to that. And it's not that dissimilar to what we started doing in Asia, but uh, it's certainly one common feedback I've been getting, as a matter of fact, from Asian investors, that the TKO platform in that respect is very complementary to some of our competitors who tend to be a little bit London-centric. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now back to the show. What does the competitive landscape look like in particular for the supply and demand and capital in some of these countries on the continent? Europe, like the rest of the world, tend to be divided into two categories. The global champions, the big franchise you can think of, who would navigate from one country to another, one strategy to another, and then the local champions. And what I would call the local champions, you know, it's the private debt manager, you know, with 500 million euros doing only Italy, let's say, right? And he's very good at doing that, and that, you know, the market is in. But he only wants to focus on that. And then you've got the global champions. We think that Europe, and that's why I think there's been an emergence of uh, some of our uh, peers and competitors, there is a handful of managers who can navigate across some of those jurisdictions. Some of them may be focusing more on uh, Northern Europe, others more on uh, Western or Southern Europe. And that's how the market is shaping up right now. What I saw in 2012, without being judgmental to uh, our friends and colleagues, is uh, on the back of the sovereign crisis, a lot of the global champions, they decided to pack and go. You know, for a few years, they were gone. They were gone, you know, euro uncertainty and all that, which, by the way, paved the way to others' managers, you know, to develop. And we want to be a partner of choice, you know, in that respect. What are the advantages of being local in a bunch of different countries compared to someone who, say, is just focused on lending in Italy? If you take the Eurozone, and if effectively as a capital allocator, you know, you have to allocate to uh, Europe as a playground, 
You want to be able to work with people who can navigate on your behalf the opportunities across you know, the markets, but also being aware of the threats. I'll give you an example. Despite you know, having this strong presence in the UK, we have been historically extremely underexposed in the UK market. Nothing against the opportunity, but we had found the market way too crowded. And as a consequence to that, our private debt, our private equity, our real estate portfolios were a little bit underexposed relative to our peers. That had proven to be a pro, but maybe today, UK might be a great investment opportunity. And we can move into that because we don't have some kind of you know, inventory. So uh, I think that's what LPs are looking for. It's uh, what I would call a local guide. If I was to sketch a bit, it's like, that's your first time in Europe. You're asking me, okay, I'm going to be spending a week with my family. Where should I go? And I would tell you, you know, go to see uh, Big Ben in London and uh, go to Rome and obviously spend, you know, some time in Venice. And oh, and by the way, you have to climb at the top of the Mont Blanc. But then I would be telling you, you know what, Ted? By the way, I'll be with you because I'll be climbing with you. I'm an investor with you here. So I think that's what investors are looking for. They want some advice, but they want the advice to be aligned. I want to dive in a little more on the investment process, and I'm not sure how much it'll matter across private equity, private debt, real estate, but you mentioned the local sourcing. What do each of these local kind of entrepreneurial-minded people do to find these opportunities? I'm French, as you probably can tell. You know, I had the chance to uh, travel across when I was younger and developing some, at least, you know, hopefully some understanding of the local uh, culture. But those entrepreneurs, when they're running the uh, business, and they are the third generation of a family-owned business. They want to expand, they have an acquisition, they need some debt, they need some capital. But it's all about the trust and the confidence. We're trying not to make our business becomes a commodity. Meaning that if it's only about being the most expensive when it comes to selling or the higher leverage when it comes to financing, then probably TKO is not the right partner. And likewise, I mean, those entrepreneurs, you know, we've been trying to put them in front of some of our colleagues that make them feel comfortable. How many times, you know, we had those uh, discussion like you would have in a in any other situation. I mean, sometimes even language, you know, language can be a challenge. We've got the common currency, but we don't really have common language. And you know how much comes with the language, right, in terms of getting to know the people. So that's where having this local presence of people interacting socially, but in a good way, you know, in a good way where you get to know the people and, and then giving them access to the platform so that we're not pushing a product to them, we're trying to understand effectively what the needs are and then coming with a very bespoke solution to their uh, ask. And what does that investment process look like when these people are out doing that locally and you need to integrate it into sort of a portfolio management structure? The very important point is that there are no individual checkbooks, if I may say, where teams effectively would make decisions on their own. All that is centralized from an IC standpoint. And so accordingly, it's very much an early involvement of the team into the idea, into the project, into feeding the IC, into interacting. Very often, you know, meeting, having management team, you know, meeting with some of the uh, IC members, you know, to understand. And uh, what I think really differentiates TKO is that we 
really, because of the platform, we really try to come up with a solution, again, more than pushing a product because we need to have a five-year financing under these terms, under this. And so all the investment process is about understanding the real needs of the company. Sometimes, without being uh, harsh on them, some management teams, some uh, business owners, they're like, I know I need 100 million to make this acquisition. My banks have been helping me working on that. I know I've got a bit of capital I can add, but what would be the best design structure that we could be working on? The most efficient, obviously, sometimes the cheapest for them, but very often you see that cost is not only the issue. It's about the flexibility. It's about, I think you have a very uh, word I like a lot in English. It's stakeholders. They want us to be their partner as a stakeholder. We may not be a shareholder with them. We may be a debt provider, a junior debt, a preferred equity, but to think like stakeholders so that, you know, in good and bad times, and, you know, what we've been through, uh, you know, lately is a good example to that. You want to be able to, uh, you know, sit side by side and not face to face, if you see what I mean. How do your teams balance the sort of what you're describing as almost a generalist who can go in, talk to the company across the capital structure, maybe even in real estate, and the specialized expertise in each of those investment strategies? That's why we have, you know, our uh, country heads in the various countries, effectively, whilst some of them might come, you know, more from the private debt, others from the equity, some from the real estate. Effectively, to your point, it's about, you know, finding, sourcing the opportunities and then pulling on the expertise we have in-house once effectively the deal shapes up. We like to define ourselves as a dedicated team within an integrated platform. That's where the sourcing the uh, origination makes the difference, and then you can come up with a bespoke approach. How far does the local team do work before they bring it back to the centralized investment committee? They remain involved all the way across, not only at the diligence phase or the closing phase, but obviously uh, during the portfolio monitoring phase. And the fact that we're trying to have some kind of a, an incentive scheme that does not create any bias on uh, how many deals you have sourced, how many uh, capital you have put at work. You're bound by some kind of a solidarity so that uh, if the deal goes well, it's not my deal. And if the deal goes bad, it's not your deal, if you see what I mean. How does that investment committee decision process work? We have, depending on the strategies, because we've got some dedicated IC, but the rule of thumb is that we've got a unanimity process to this uh, committee so that we create what I said. There's been enough work along the way so that people had their chance to challenge, to dig. You know, we're trying as much as we can not to have people discovering a 50 pages investment memo on a Friday for an IC you know, on the Monday. We want people to be socialized along the way, having a exchange, very often also having leverage, you know, their own skill set, skill sets or reach or network or knowledge about. A, so that's, you know, how we would work. And we really want something that I've learned over the years. I'm co-CIO. I remain co-CIO of the group. And over the years, I've learned to ask sometimes the most junior team member to speak up first. Okay. Because otherwise, it's just his or her judgment, you know, gets biased because someone, you know, talks uh, louder than she would or he would. And I think that's important. And partly, you know, sometimes we have, you know, we finance some fairly disruptive businesses, you know, not that we do much tech, but uh, I didn't really have a good sense. And sometimes, you know, just common sense from those people are actually extremely uh, helpful. So that's one thing, you know, we're trying to uh, favor as much as we can, you know, is to speak up. 
How do you work through a process of trying to make sure you fully understand all the risks of an investment and then try to drive consensus? I think it's embedded in the origination and the diligence of the deal. Because sometimes either you don't like, let's say, the asset or the opportunity, and there's nothing you can do about changing that, right? Now, if it's about, you know, the terms of a deal or if it's about, you know, the structure of a deal, you know, then it becomes, you know, very different. You can effectively, the same way you would uh, compromise with a seller or a buyer, you know, with a bank by negotiating, you want everyone to find common grounds as to, okay, that's the most optimal structure or pricing structure. Now, if effectively day one, it did not make the cut of the very merit of the investment, there's no point spending three weeks or three months and spending in a lot of money in diligence. Where do you find that people on the investment committee have this sort of natural disagreements about ideas? So again, it would differ between our private debt, equity, or real estate strategies, but uh, let's take uh, direct lending, for example. Direct lending in Europe has been lagging relative to the US in terms of development, and then it picked up over the past few years. And then we're starting seeing some very deteriorated structure, collateral package, security package, leverage, pricing. And you know, sometimes you would have the people saying, well, but this is where the market is. These are the market terms. And then the people saying, you know what, I don't want to be in this market then. And that's you know something that you know we think that it's about also we have a role vis-a-vis our LP, but also vis-a-vis ourselves as principal. Obviously, we need to be aware of the market, but we, we need to be able to resist a market. And so that would be typically where we would see that. Or leverage, you know, when we are an equity investor or real estate investors, we're just coming out of a very uh, long and cheap debt environment. You would have been tempted to put 10% more debt on a deal because that was juicing up your IRR by 1%. We're not alchemists. We're not trying to turn lead into gold. You know, the asset should have its merits in itself and not effectively having the going a step too far, you know. And that's where most of the time we would have interesting debates. So most of these aren't really on or off trade-offs. It's just a matter of degree. So what is like the TKO type deal, whether that's in terms of debt or equity relative to the market? Coming from uh, Antoine and I, real estate and leverage finance you know, background, we are people who have uh, developed cash flow-based approach, be for financing or investing. So uh, at times, you can come across as boring because people are all into the uh, high-growing, fast tech, go for the uh, very high multiple. But when effectively cycle turns, you know, and on the longer term, you know, that's where we think that we feel the most comfortable. So uh, I would say we've got a very downside protected investment philosophy and uh, approach. As I said, you know, we'll be more the uh, 15% type of IRR than more the 3x effectively. And we'll be trying to downside protect, you know, the seed investment. And there is, you know, a basic thing that people tend to, to say, but not always follow. I mean, the two rules... Only invest in things, you know, you understand. And I know, certainly, but I'm hopeful that our team, you know, can help us go past that. And the other thing is only do business with people you know as well. Because, uh, you know, the long term, sometimes on the medium term, you never know how people will react when, when things turn bad. And it's proven to be, uh, to be true uh, over the years, both on the investment side, on the investor side, Having our investors support in good times is great, but having them when things you know, are more challenging has even more value. 
How do you view your role post-investment with your portfolio companies? So we are always either a board member or a board observer in any company we invest in so that you do not get the numbers or the facts after the fact, you know, 60 days, 90 days after we don't have much say, but at least you're in the flow of the dynamic and you can help them preempt some situation or address some situation and trying to use the TKO platform. So uh, let's say that uh, you've got this uh, European uh, company looking at acquisition in the U.S., well, we want to make sure that we connect them. And even if, you know, it's a totally unrelated businesses, we want to make sure that we open up our uh, network to their uh, benefits. And that's something we learned over the years by you know, very strong partners of ours. I can think of, um, you know, I was mentioning Asia. Temasek, you know, was a pre-IPO shareholder of ours and remained. And they've been a great partner uh, ever since. That's very much how they uh, operate because, you know, it's really uh, one team, one culture, one PNL, and you want to make sure that your portfolio companies also benefit from that. What opportunities are you most excited about today? We are only at the beginning of the private market strategies in Europe. You know how much money uh, has been allocated by uh, North American LPs to these strategies. The very fact that, uh, you know, the numbers, uh, 80% of uh, the companies are uh, non-bank finance in the U.S., when in Europe, the contrary, it's 20%. So you've got all this dynamic of a market who is much maturing. And we want to be able to address as much of it as possible. That's why you saw TKO evolving from our very first deal that we were debating was a real estate deal. But then as a third-party money manager, you know, we were probably uh, fairly early in the direct lending and the private debt. And today we've got a much more balanced portfolio. I think that on the back of what we are living today, there is a massive need for equity capitalization of the mid-market companies. They've been using... I would say rightly so, given the circumstances, some of them, an excess of uh, cheap leverage. And today, you know, as the cycle turns, you know, there will be a need for a long-term capital equity base for all those, uh, you know, family-owned businesses that have been there for three generations sometimes and certainly here to last and they don't intend to sell. So that's clearly one. And you can call it however you want. You know, it can be growth equity, minority equity, special opportunities. It's about, you know, providing a solution in a world where there's never been so much you know, capital, it's about directing it to the right opportunity. And that's, that's where we think you know, the uh, opportunity is, is to provide this bespoke solution. And you don't have to call it a private debt, equity, junior equity. It's a funding solution for entrepreneurs. And that's where there's a, a massive need. How do you think about risk as we're in this pandemic and who knows what it looks like and when on the other side? You only know what what you know, and uh, the past two months now, there's been a lot of assumptions and debate that you know, I'm certainly not qualified you know, to discuss the sanitary crisis. But uh, what we know is, you know, our portfolio companies, how much cash did they have, you know, when they marched the first? How much cash do they have, you know, June the first? 
what are the various stress tests you can have? And is it about, you know, securing a state-backed financial aid that we had in the U.S., that we had in Europe? Or is it effectively adding uh, more uh, capital now? And making sure that as much as we can, you know, we help them get back within the, uh, the wider environment into their own businesses. So for me, those guys, they know how to manage their company. I'm not there to tell them how to manage their company. We would be qualified for that. But we can help them manage the liability side of their company. That's where we can provide by being principal investors, you know, third-party investors. And whilst we don't do advisory, we are an advisor by design, right? to them and that's where we can be helpful to them so uh, the notion of risk can shift over a cycle of an investment you know from the industrial risk to financial risk to the macro risk that we are uh, experiencing today but there is one thing i'm convinced of and i think it's shared by many of my uh, partners here i don't think it's the end of the world it might be the end of one world the world that has been using way too much leverage at the cheap way to finance businesses and that is hitting back today pretty uh, pretty badly. But entrepreneurs will remain, opportunities will remain, the opportunities might shift. And it's about having not only some velocity in your capital and being nimble in the way you, uh, you can address those opportunities. So, uh, yeah, I mean, to your point, I think we are the... Uh, hopefully the biggest risk manager of the group being so much aligned with our investors. What are the biggest lessons and maybe through some examples that you learned over this 14, 15 years as investors? First one is uh, never take anything for granted. On Friday, September the 13, 2008, Lehman Brothers was singly rated. On the Monday morning, it had defaulted, and that was the catalyst to, you know, a much wider uh, situation. And I'm saying that because sometimes the guidelines you have, and here it's, it's I'm mentioning a rating, I'm not debating ratings, but as a, a young entrepreneur working with younger people, don't take anything for granted and challenge all the time, you know, in a proactive, you know, in a constructive way. But, you know, you should be, you should be challenging, you know, what is uh, coming across as uh, something that people will tell you, well, that has always been the case. So uh, that's certainly one. I said about doing only business with people you know that over time, either you take money as a commodity and uh, you allocate money with a view to uh, only making high return with the money, or you can try to do high return with the money, but with a smart approach. And that's where you can create also some connectivity. You can create some relationship that, you know, you will uh, meet again in other circumstances. And those are clearly important things. And uh, having lived with most of the team, the uh, GFC, the sovereign crisis, you only learn, you know, in adverse moments. As you said, you know, maybe it's at the end of a cycle or a beginning on another one, but we're just coming out a 10 years period where, no offense, but it was easy to generate some performance when you are throwing the dices and it's double six all the time. You end up not anymore looking at the dices because uh, it's, you know, and you cannot cheat with experience. That's really the, uh, the lessons you learned and uh, experience is additive. By the way, where does the TKO name come from? TKO is a French Polynesian island somewhere uh, far away in the Pacific Ocean, thanks to some uh, family connection of my partner Antoine when he created the business. Okay. Well, Matteo, let's turn to a few closing questions. 
What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? That's a tricky one, you know, work taking so much time of our day to day because, you know, it's not even work. You know, we've been doing that. And that's the beauty of uh, being an entrepreneur in this career. But uh, I must confess a slight uh, interest for uh, fine wines and not only French. (laughs) Do you have a favorite? Well, you know what? Now that I'm uh, living abroad, you know, I'm trying to uh, get smarter on your uh, West Coast and Oregon, uh, Oregon wines, but uh, I'm fairly agnostic, you know, as long as, you know, you discover. And here again, you don't take anything for granted. They're going to hate me. But yes, there are, you know, very good things beyond the Bordeaux and the Bourgogne. What's your biggest pet peeve? It would probably be, you know, knowing that you haven't checked everything you had to check before getting into a situation and considering or taking again you know taking for granted something that people you know may have missed or overlooked it doesn't mean that you have to be a control freak but you're here to make sure that every stone has been unturned and again don't take anything for granted because someone told you that it was okay what's been your biggest mistake where you may have learned that lesson I would say maybe that, uh, you know, in the early years, I would tie that maybe to the patient that was driving us and to the uh, energy we're putting there. And uh, because we wanted a seat at the table, you would listen to some uh, advisors, banks telling you, well, you should really look at that because, you know, the other guys, you know, the big boys, you know, they're into these things. And you just don't want to be a, a follower. We have another uh, saying here at TKO, I'll leave you with that, is uh, we like to say uh, create, not compete. And so uh, thinking out of the box and trying not to follow the crowd is probably uh, what we've done best. But certainly in the early years, you know, we may have done some mistakes there. Do you have any other of those great TKO phrases? Yeah, well, what do they tell you? The uh, create, not compete, you know, think out of the box. First, always say yes. You know, that's what we tell and teach to our, uh, to our young uh, analyst associate. Be curious. Never take no for an answer as well, you know, because that has become uh, easier not to do something rather than to fight to do that. And one that I did not mention is that uh, in this industry, uh, Ted, there are plenty of people ready to make money with someone else's money, but uh, only few ready to make money with their kids' money. And that's what uh, differentiates maybe an entrepreneur, you know, from just an agent. What do you do for self-growth? Being, uh, tr- trying, and it's a challenge, Ted. And I know some of my uh, friends, entrepreneurs, you know, in this, uh, in this industry uh, are probably much better than I am at uh, trying to keep some, uh, some downtime to effectively remove yourself from what is your patient. Because what we do is patient, you know, and uh, trying to uh, effectively keep this uh, little downtime when you can look outside the screen, you know, the TV screens, the uh, financial uh, information screens, or, you know, an annual report, be yours or someone else is, uh, is something important for me. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? Get out of your comfort zone. Is probably uh, the one that, um, you know, I uh, make the most of. And I think you can apply that to many situations. And I think that maybe, you know, in this 
environment, you know, these times we're living in, you know, leaving aside what we are going through nowadays is, you know, it has become a very comfortable society for people in our seat, for people in our industry. And getting out of your comfort zone is what uh, makes you move forward. All right, Mato, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? It's never too early to try. And uh, the very fact that we went early in this venture, I wish I had known that before. I might be actually a bit more too conservative, which comes back, you know, to my parents, you know, teaching. But yes, give it a try. And, you know, we spent so much time with uh, young kids on campus, you know, students. And the financial industry has changed so much since we started that we're trying to convey this message. Right, Mateo, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me, Ted. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time.